Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 21 of Unknown Orbits, Black Destroyer by A.E. Van Vogt. I'm Patrick Baird. And I'm Steve Reitze. Today we're going to be looking at a highly acclaimed, important story, Black Destroyer. And we're also going to be discussing the concept of a golden age of science fiction. Black Destroyer is the story of a highly intelligent alien creature who is the last survivor of a fallen civilization. And he has consumed most of the food source on his planet and is slowly starving to death. And just at that moment, an Earth exploration team lands a spaceship on the planet and he immediately begins to investigate them, and they are intrigued, not repelled by him. I should mention this is a panther-like creature with tentacles growing out of its back, and the uh, Earth explorers, it's actually a very large spaceship, about 100 men, begin exploring the planet. They encounter this creature. The creature initially feigns friendliness in order to infiltrate their expedition to learn more about them, to learn about their technology, to learn their strengths and weaknesses. So once it has mastered some idea of its technology and its own recovered memories from when its civilization was in its flower begin returning to him, he is bold enough to take control of the spaceship. The spaceship goes off into space. And while he's controlling the spaceship, he murders a number of the crew and eats their bone marrow. Apparently, he finds the bone marrow to be an essential nutrient and builds his own miniature spaceship through which he escapes. And uh, eventually, the Earthmen trick him, track him down, and destroy him. So it's your basic alien takes over an Earth spaceship, starts killing people scenario. What do you think of the story? Well, because of the issue it's in, I've read the story before. Unfortunately, I didn't have time to reread all of it before this podcast. So I'm kind of going on memory for part of this. Now, having said that, I thought the writing was very well done, but the story itself was, was very familiar. It was basically alien. And it's funny you should mention that. It was indeed very reminiscent of Alien. It was so reminiscent that A.E. Van Vogt got a $50,000 out-of-court settlement from the producers of Alien after that movie was released. The idea of an uh, alien creature stalking and killing people in a spaceship was not that new in 1979. In fact, I think you mentioned to me another movie. Yes, I thought the thing that Alien ripped off was It, the Terror from Beyond Space. Have you seen it? Oh, I, I, it's a fun little movie. They land on Mars, I believe, and somehow a Mars monster gets in the ship with them and starts murdering the crew, and they are barricaded in the control room, and they try all kinds of different things to destroy them. Uh, that happened to be written by Jerome Bixby, science fiction writer. The ending of It from Terror Beyond Space is clearly something that Alien borrowed, 
they get rid of it eventually by tying themselves down, opening an airlock and blasting yes, it into space. exactly. So Joan Bixby probably should have gotten a cut of that settlement, perhaps. And certainly, since this was a highly acclaimed story, one of the best stories and an important story of that era... It's likely that Bixby had read it and probably took some ideas from it. And just to mention, later this story was incorporated into a collection that was a fix-up. They had a series of stories about this spaceship called Voyages of the Spaceship Beagle. And apparently one of them involved a story of an alien that put its eggs inside of people and they hatched. And so that also... Is probably why they got that settlement from the producers of Alien. I believe Dan O'Banion was one of the writers of Alien, and he was asked if he had borrowed from it. And he said, oh, we borrowed from everything. Yeah, yes, absolutely. So my take on the story is, I agree with you, I think it's very well written. The fact that it's from the perspective of the alien, the alien is a complex and interesting creature. It's not a monster. It's an actual alien, highly intelligent alien being. The idea that he begins to recover lost memories as he begins working with the technology of the Earth spaceship is very interesting. And I like the battle of the wits that takes place between the Earth crew and this alien. They're both using science to outmaneuver each other. And that part of the story was very interesting to me. This sounds very familiar when you said it's recovering lost memories. Its own memories or the memories of the people he had eaten? No, this was a very ancient creature. It had lived for a thousand years or something like that. And so when its civilization fell, it was one of the last survivors of that civilization. And because out of necessity, it kind of descended to a level of barbarism, I guess, where he was eating animals of the planet and hunting for food. And in that process, which may have taken hundreds of years, he kind of lost touch with who he was in the earlier part of his life. It's possible I may have read it a long time ago, particularly since there was, and I know you're going to touch on the significance of this issue, there was a hardcover reprint in the 1980s because of its importance. Yes. And this was a much anthologized story too. So it's entirely possible that you may have read it in some other anthology. So yes, it's most likely that you did run across it at an earlier point. So I think we both agree. It's a well-written story. It's a good story with interesting ideas. And Van Vogt was an interesting guy. He came out of a very tough situation in the Depression. He couldn't go to college, worked odd jobs. And he actually wrote for romance magazines for several years before he started writing science fiction. He was a longtime fan, but he didn't submit anything until 1939, and he had been writing for pulp magazines for several years before this. His first story that he submitted was rejected by John W. Campbell. Black Destroyer was his first published science fiction story. One of the reasons that he gained some degree of prominence, aside from just being a good writer, was that he was rejected for service during World War II due to poor vision. So he was able to write a lot of fiction during the 1940s. He was one of the main writers of Astounding Magazine. And in fact, he won a contest at Most Popular Writer in a 1947 poll of readers and was a favorite of Campbell. He was part of Campbell's inner circle. I do remember reading an account from Campbell where during the war... He was very aware that he was going to the B team and he was trying to elevate them. Right. So anybody who was not actively in the service, like, for instance, Isaac Asimov was not in the service, but he was 
working for a defense research lab. Heinlein was, even though he had a Navy background, was rejected for service, and he was working also in some sort of a research capacity. No, he was like an administrator. Yeah. Yeah, he was like working as like an administrator at a research lab. Well, the same facility, if not the same. Yeah, I think that's how Asimov got his job, was Heinlein got the job as the administrator, and he brought Asimov in to, to work there. There was only a handful of science fiction writers who went into the actual service, but many of them, if they didn't go into the service had defense-related jobs that interfered with their ability to be prolific during the 40s. The other thing about A.E. Van Vogt, which we'll just touch on, because we're definitely going to talk about this in more detail later, he was one of the top acolytes of L. Ron Hubbard when he created his Scientology cult. As a matter of fact, A.E. Van Vogt was so heavily involved in Scientology in the 1950s that it drastically impacted his output, and he did not write a lot of science fiction for about 10 years because he was at the center of this cult L. Ron Hubbard had set up. So technically, it was Dianetics at that point. The first yes. publication was yeah, the Dianetics. First, the first, like I said, we're going to go into this in more detail, but Campbell was also involved in Dianetics, the early days. And that's going to be the topic of a future conversation, but we're going to be talking about a golden age here in a minute. He missed an opportunity to really be a bigger part of the golden age because he spent 10 years basically administering this cult. So that's the background of Mr. Van Vogt. So one of the reasons we're talking about the golden age of science fiction today is that the issue that this story was published in, the July 1939 issue of Astounding, was considered to be, by some writers, the beginning of the golden age of science fiction because not only was Van Vogt published for the first time in this issue, Isaac Asimov published not his first story ever, but his first story for Astounding in this issue. The next issue after this issue was the issue in which Robert Heinlein published his first story in Astounding Magazine. So that was when a lot of people said, okay, there's no question, this is when the golden age of science fiction started, when all of these great writers finally appeared in Astounding Magazine under the editorship of John W. Campbell. Now, some people go back a little further and say it was when he actually stepped in as editor in October 1938. That's when the golden age began. So that's a matter of debate, even among fans of John W. Campbell. I think it would be a little unrealistic to expect the golden age to start from his first issue. He's got a get a little time in before he starts evolving the genre. Of course, because he probably had a backlog of stories that were already sold. So that's why some people say 1930, even though technically he started in late 1937, a lot of people say 1938, because that was probably when he began to exert his influence on the issue. And that was also the year that his own story, Who Goes There, which we've talked about, was published, was in 1938 in Astounding. You know, one of the things I've tried to do in this podcast, and I think you're, you've are you been with me on this, is to try to promote the idea that it's not like science fiction was terrible before John W. Campbell came along. There was plenty of good science fiction being written outside of Astounding Magazine before 1938. And one of the ones that we've talked about, A Martian Odyssey, is one of the great science fiction stories of all time, published by, of all people, Hugo Gernsbach. And he had a couple of editors, which we've talked about, that were pretty good. So there was a lot of stuff that was being written before John Campbell came along. But I'm willing to give him credit for having created a focus in his magazine on science 
and on technical accuracy that was beneficial to the field. It's no question that John W. Campbell and Astounding Magazine laid important foundations on science fiction that steered it away from being space opera. Yeah, I agree. I think his efforts created the golden age. When people say the golden age of this or that, it's this idea of that was the the best there ever was. I think in science fiction is really more of a description of a stylistic change rather than just being this time of the best science fiction. I would, to some degree, disagree with that because we've already read some stuff that fell during the Campbell editorship. And we've read stuff by Campbell or tried to read stuff by Campbell himself. We actually tried to read Islands of Space and both of us demanded that we not have to do that one. I don't need that trauma in my yeah, it was life. Just, the, just trying to get through just the first few chapters was brutal. So there was a lot of not necessarily good writing under Campbell. There was a lot of very mediocre writers who wrote very mediocrely written stories that just happened to have interesting ideas. And many of those ideas came from Campbell. Yeah, but right now you're actually agreeing with me. Well, what I'm saying is that it's an incomplete picture to me because there's more to science fiction than interesting ideas. And I think you could make the argument that this period of 1939 brought in a better quality of writer, certainly in the case of Heinlein. You and I have both talked about how Asimov is at best is a kind of a mediocre writer who yes. expressed really interesting ideas. So he's like the classic Campbell writer. I always think of Asimov as like Campbell's Frankenstein monster, that he came to the offices as a fan and was kind of like wanting to get involved in science fiction and maybe write. And, and Campbell took him under his wing and said, hey, kid, I'll uh, I'll build you up to become a good science fiction writer. And he gave him a lot of ideas. And we'll be talking about that in a near future episode. But I just want to make the point that, yes, under Campbell in Astounding for 10 years, throughout the most of the 1940s, there was a lot of great ideas. Some of them were well-written. Some of them were not. I do want to provide this quote about that era from Asimov. In that period, Campbell's views were in full force in the magazine, and the authors he trained and developed were writing with the full ardor of youth. So John W. Campbell, there's no question that he developed writers, some of whom turned out to become important writers like Asimov. I think buried in that quote is the idea that these writers that he trained would have completely embraced his view. But what do we mean by Campbell's view? To me, it's Campbell's view is pretty simple. The science is the most important thing in the story, that as long as you get the science right, he's not going to be too terribly concerned about the writing. And that may have been market driven. There were other magazines that were published at the time. He was in competition with a number of other magazines. As a matter of fact, Asimov himself was published elsewhere before he finally got published in Astounding. That I didn't know. Yeah. So... He was competing for the services of writers, and I imagine that he had to compromise. Maybe he wanted better writing in his magazine, but he felt that he had to make a choice. Do I hold out and try to get really good writers on this staff to write good stories, or can I actually save money for my employer and have some guy who's an engineer who writes on the side is not a particularly good writer, but I can hand him the science and he'll get the science right. I would say absolutely that he was driven more towards the good idea than the good writing. Right. So I think it was not only his personal preference, but it may have been market driven where it was cheaper and easier to bring in a less developed writer to write the science that he himself 
worked out and handed to them. I mean, that was kind of his working model. So that's my take on this idea of the Campbell golden era. I will give him credit for this. I did dig up a little fact here. So I looked at the Science Fiction Hall of Fame selections from 1938 to 1950. Ten of the 12 selections from that era were published in Astounding Magazine. I don't know if that's an actual measure of quality or whether that is a measure of the bias that people had towards Campbell and Astounding Magazine of that era. But you can't dispute that the impact there was fairly significant. Interestingly, if you look at the Hall of Fame after 1950, then other magazines come in like Galaxy and Fantasy Book. Even Planet Stories had a Hall of Fame story in it. So um, I'm going to bring up this other quote here. It's not attributed to anyone. It's just one that I saw repeated several times. What's the golden age of science fiction? The golden age of science fiction is 13. In other words, the golden age of science fiction is whatever was being published when you were 13 years old. I have an analogy to that. The woman you prefer is the woman who was in Playboy when you were 13 years old. Boy, you know, now that I think about that, that's pretty true. I think that definitely applies to me because the 1970s Playboy models were more buxom than the 80s. The 80s, they were like fit. And a lot of them were blonde. And, and the hair, the and big the, hair. The, I like the big hair, but I think I'm definitely more drawn to the, the classic Playboy buxom, full-figured, mostly brunettes. So I think I agree with that quote. Now, 13, how old was I when I was 13? 13, that would have been 1971. So 1971, I was not reading a lot of science fiction. I was, well, not 71, when I was 13, 78. Well, I started reading science fiction around 75, I think. Though we discussed this before, there was this kind of oddness about I read a ton of juvenile science fiction right probably would have been before you were 13 i would guess yes then as i grew older i didn't read science fiction and then i same here discovered it as an adult yeah so it's almost like they're two different things yeah my teen years which would have begun in 1971 were dominated by horror and fantasy so that was the era when i was reading edgar rice burroughs and classic fantasy conan i was reading a lot of horror hp lovecraft so the whole weird tales and that whole area of fantasy and horror was very big for me at that point in my life. So my golden age was the weird tales days of the 1930s when Lovecraft and Howard and Clark Ashton Smith were publishing all of their material. My golden age is what I would call the silver age of science fiction, roughly 1950 to 1958. Which if I was going to name... When was the peak of science fiction, given the fact that I'm completely ignorant of most science fiction written in the last 20 years? I would say the 1950s were, in terms of quality, were way better than the 1940s. No question. One number I remember is in 1953, and I think this was the peak of science fiction magazine publishing, there were 40 different titles. That's a lot. That is an amazing number of science fiction magazines. And in order to have 40 magazines, think of the number of writers that would have been contributing in those days. And some of them would have been like your father, who was a professional writer and tried to write for as many different kinds of magazines as he could to support himself. So there were probably a lot of people who are non-science fiction writers, per se, who were writing for those magazines, in addition to the 
actual science fiction writers themselves. My dad actually wrote a time travel story, no, two time travel stories, and a post-apocalyptic story. Sure, as would probably almost any writer. And the thing is, if there's 40 magazines out there and all you want to do is write science fiction, you could certainly have, have had a career writing for a couple of different magazines. All you need to do is find a couple of editors that liked you enough to regularly accept whatever it is you wrote. So there were some people, I'm sure, that everything they wrote got published or close to it. Well, there's also drop and down for less and less money to get something right, published. I, I think we've talked about this before, but yeah. Did you know Ellen Arkin, before he became a famous actor, did some writing and he had a couple uh, science fiction stories published? That's very interesting. That's, that's almost something we should do as an episode someday. Something to consider. <laughs> that would be very interesting. Alan Arkin, the science fiction writer. <laughs> I keep thinking of him as Yosarian, was it? Yeah, he was Yosarian in um, Catch-22. Yeah. But I always think of him for The In-Laws. I love that movie with uh, Falk. Oh, I was thinking Peter of Falk. a different movie. The In-Laws with Peter Falk is a classic comedy. I love that movie. He's like a CIA agent. That's the question of the whole movie. Is he a crazy person or is he a CIA agent? That's a wonderful movie. That's a major digression. I'm just going to kind of wrap up my thoughts on the whole concept of a golden age. Here's a good way to do it. We can compare it to the golden age of comic books. So golden age comic books were the original generation of comic books published in the 1940s. That's when Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman, Captain America, when they were all created, that's considered by comic book fans the golden age of comic books. And then the Silver Age began in the late 1950s when DC Comics created the Justice League and revived some of its older characters from the golden age. And then Marvel followed by creating the Fantastic Four in response, in part, to the Justice League's popularity, and then created Spider-Man and revived some of its characters from the early days of Marvel Comics in the 1940s, Captain America, Submariner. That's when Batman became a much more interesting character during the 1960s, when more socially relevant stories began to be written, like the famous anti-drug storyline involving Green Arrow you and Marvel. We had Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby. So as a comic book fan, I think the Silver Age of the 1960s were the greatest era of comic books. And it's very similar to my thinking on the 1950s being the greatest age of science fiction, that the genre in both the case of science fiction and comic books had matured from limited origin. Comic books of the 1940s were, to some degree, juvenile, derivative, and there was a limited amount of originality and the art was not as great as it became in the 1960s. And science fiction, again, it was limited because you had all this heavily scientific stuff, not always necessarily well-written, and the writing became much better in the 1950s. More interesting ideas came along that were not heavily technical. So that's the analogy that I think I would like to make, that maybe the idea of a golden age is not always accurate, that sometimes the silver age is better than the golden age. So I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's my take on the whole idea of a golden age. I would agree that the silver age of anything can easily be better than the golden age because the golden age is a period of development. And if you don't mind a very poetic take on it, the golden age of anything is when the foundational creators were young and the world was new. 
Yes, that that's a very good analogy. I like that. Okay, any other thoughts? No, that's it. All right. Okay, that's it for episode 21. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Wrightsey. Keep watching the sky. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.